1: And this is Resettled. Samira Khaykhwa fled Afghanistan in 1998 with her mother, her father, and two brothers.
2: We packed a small bag and locked our home with all our belongings, not knowing if we will ever return. And we never did.
1: This is Samira reading a personal essay about her experiences. When Samira and her family got on the bus, they prayed they wouldn't get pulled over by the Taliban and get caught fleeing Afghanistan. All of the families who boarded the bus had come up with stories, just in case they were ever pulled over. And they got lucky. The bus driver knew a secret route.
2: We resettled in Pakistan as refugees. We weren't sure where life was going to take us. Living in Pakistan was not easy for my family.
1: In Pakistan, they began to experience life as refugees. Samira's father struggled to find a job.
2: Due to constant stress of not having enough, fleeing home and being a refugee, not being able to return to a country that was home, which was only a bus ride away, he became very sick. And in 2001, we lost my dad.
1: After losing her husband, Samira's mother, Mrs. Leiluma, was determined to bring her children to the United States.
2: I remember her saying, you all deserve a future, a bright future. I must say my mom is my superwoman because she made a goal and she did not give up until she fulfilled it.
1: Samira, along with her mother and two brothers, landed in Charlottesville, Virginia on September 19, 2002. They had arrived, but weren't sure to what exactly. Here's Samira during our interview with her in October of 2019.
2: I started seeing my mom, she was just staying by the window for like hours, just looking out and not knowing where we will end up being like in a few years. Like it was just like so unknown, everything was so unpredictable and um, the loneliness for her was very hard and we were afraid of leaving the house. Because we didn't know anything. We didn't know our way around. We didn't know how to get to anywhere. It was so scary.
1: As a single mother of three children in a new country, going through the stages of grief, Mrs. Leiluma had a lot to grapple with. Samira was only nine when they arrived in the U.S. She helped her mom shoulder some of the responsibility. She helped with paperwork to pay the bills and translated interactions.
2: I remember smiling a lot because I remember my mother telling us we have to show the Americans we're happy to be here, so we didn't get, so we don't get sent back home. So just imagine how much I smiled.:
1: When they first arrived, Samira's mom had to leave for work before the sun came up through all kinds of weather. Her children would cry as soon as she left.
3: Um, When I first got here, I was using public bus for almost seven months uh, to go to work. And and it was really hard for me because I had to get there at seven in the morning. Um, Also, my kids were scared and they were uh, crying for me. They didn't know if I would um, get hurt.
1: It was a huge adjustment. In Afghanistan, Mrs. Leluma didn't drive. Under Taliban rule, it was illegal because she was a woman. But once they were in Virginia, she needed to become her family's provider. After two years, Mrs. Leiluma and her children moved to a cheaper apartment. She also started a job at a supermarket.
4: Um, uh,
3: then uh, my friends and I uh, get together and uh, decided to learn um, how to drive um, and who will be in the right person to help us. Because at that time uh, there were not a lot of Afghans around here and obviously uh, we didn't know anybody either. We didn't know uh, where to go and what to do. Mm -hmm. Finally um, someone guided us to go to uh, driving school and I think the cost per semester was uh, $270, which was uh, two weeks classes. We took those classes, but and that was not enough for us and was not confident to drive in, in the city. And then uh, there were uh, some other people um, who got here before us or they already learned driving, helped us behind the wheel until um, I drove uh, confidently.
1: Eventually, Mrs. Leiluma took the exam, and she passed.
2: It was, I think, two years, and then she was driving, which was amazing to me because as a kid, I was watching my mom drive. I would be, like, so amazed at, like, how can you drive? Like, I will, and I always told her, like, I don't think I'll ever be able to drive. That's so scary. Like, how can you do that?
1: Mrs. Leiluma was proud. She was the first of her friends to get her driver's license, and she was determined to get a car to go along
4: with it. drive a new and bought
3: a when i learned um how to drive with confidence i was so happy also um i was the uh, only person who tried uh, to buy a car on her own uh, because uh, some of them were waiting for irc to get a donation from them Uh, but i preferred to do not wait for irc if i waited um, it would take a long time even an year to get a car. So I bought um, a car for myself before anyone else did it. And um, it was the happiest part of my life uh, that I bought a car for myself and learned how to drive. Uh, suddenly I found a green car uh, which was quite new um, and nice. I was so happy when I got that car. I would clean and uh, washing my car all the time. I would also give rides to five women uh, who worked with me. At first I wouldn't uh, play music in the car uh, because I was quite scared uh, but then I started playing music at a really high volume while driving. When my son grown up, I gave it to him and then uh, Samir also uh, learned how to drive on the same car.
4: Yeah. Uh, Samira bas, bas, her Samira Janam Dodge that drive became the uh the
1: That green sedan changed everything.
2: Because I remember her driving to the house with her green. Dodge Stratus. And I was like, we walked out, we all like ran out. It was like looking at her car. We were all so like happy and excited. And it was like, that moment was for us. Like we all like realized, okay, I think we're going to be fine.
1: We caught up with Samira in July, 2020. Sadly, her mom sold the green Dodge Stratus a couple of years ago, but she recently bought an SUV because as Samira says, she now has the courage to drive a bigger car. In fact, a lot of time has passed since we first spoke to the other resettled refugees in the series. And we wanted to check back in with them and see if they truly feel resettled. And if so, how did that happen?
2: For my mom, it was getting her license.
0: Did I find home? or were I able to resettle?
1: Fatma, who we met while she was in high school in the education episode, is now juggling classes at college. She sent us a voice memo.
0: Of course not. (laughs) I have like a zillion questions in my head that I really need an answer for. But at least at this point, I don't feel like a strange person. Or maybe less than others. Because some people chose to title me as an immigrant. Or maybe as unworthy of living. Regarding my home. Or the place I was born in. I don't that home is a place at all, at least not outside, not in a physical way. I really believe that home, whatever it is, it's not where I am right now. (laughs) Maybe it will be a place where I can wake up every day and not think about when when I will come back to bed again. Maybe just be excited every day. That I woke up and be thankful that I did. Instead of having the sentence in my head where I say, oh, here we go again. That for sure will be where home is.
1: Ahmed Al-Syria, who we met in the episode on mental health, just celebrated his 10-year anniversary of arriving in Virginia. And over the span of the past decade, Ahmed has been an active member of his community, and also became a U.S. citizen. He's a volunteer firefighter, and will soon graduate from the firefighting academy's training program. He hopes to become a full-time firefighter soon. As for feeling resettled,
5: I think so. I mean, still uh, learning about stuff, and, but I feel I'm more settled than before. You know, like now we kind of. Uh, Time to take the breath, you know, like, you know, things around, people, yeah. So I, this is home now, you know, I I grew up here, you know. I come so young here now, I'll be 30 soon, you know. So it's, I grew up here, it's my home now.
1: But Ahmed says that his parents are still facing some challenges.
5: For me, I really got into the culture more and reacted with people more. They did too, but different. They still, it's hard with them for the school. They speak English, but maybe some of the stuff they can't really handle. And we try to be a supportive family because they don't have their family here, you know. Or we lost their family, you know. So I try always to um, take my mom out to events involved with people, meeting different people, so that way can actually see a lot of stuff involved with the community more.
1: His father, who was nicknamed Angelina Jolie because of all of the outreach and support he gave to other refugees while the family was in the camp, has become a community leader again, now in Virginia.
5: And my father do a lot too. Uh, he, he do a lot to the community and still do, volunteering, uh, delivering food for uh, refugees here, the new people, kind of guide them as well.
1: Dadi Neopani, who we met in our jobs episode, is now studying for his Licensed Master Social Worker exam, or LMSW. He feels torn on the resettlement question.
6: Well, there's always a, A part where you will not never be settled. You are physically settled here. You have a house. You have a job. But but you are not where you were born. You don't have all of your family here. Still, your heart needs your motherland. Your place where you were born. You miss your place where your relatives are, you know. It's always that you'll be missing your country. And the government of Wartan has uh, blocked us from visiting our family. And I wish they could allow us at least to go see our families physically. We can hug them and see them. uh, At least if that restriction could be lifted, we'll have some sort of relief. To go on to the point where you said that you felt fully resettled, you know? Yeah, it's, it's very hard. But life is what it is, and you have to be happy with what you have. And always be positive and optimistic that you have this opportunity, and there are a lot of people who are left behind who are even trying to get into the country and haven't got that chance.
1: Nuri. The chef from our most recent episode about culture said that feeling fully resettled depends on the support of the community you land in.
7: Well, I feel like um, I'm resettled, fully resettled, because um, the way I take um, life is that wherever you go, that's your cl- that's your country, that's your homeland. You can start it over from there. It was a couple of weeks that I was not familiar with the, you know. Uh, how to find a job, where to go, how things will work. But, you know, since we have the technology, you can find anything you want. For me, it was it was really easy to resettle in the United States. So I think I'm resettled now, but um, I have goals that I have to follow. Because, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, people were talking about um, America is a land of opportunity. When I came in here, I was like, I have to open my restaurant. I have to do this and that. You know, whatever you want to do, you can do it. People are there to help you.
1: The resettlement process that Samira, Mrs. Leilouma, Fatma, Dadi, Ahmed and Nuri describe is becoming increasingly rare in the United States. The number of refugees allowed into the country is set by the president. And recently, those numbers have seen a sharp decline. In fiscal year 2017, the Obama administration set the refugee cap at a little over 100,000 people, meaning that was the largest number of refugees potentially allowed in. But this past year, the Trump administration limited that number to just 18,000. That's more than an 80% cut, and the lowest number ever set since the formal program began. And then came the coronavirus, After the break, I'll speak to our executive producer, Angela Messino, about what this means for the refugee resettlement program and the people we followed throughout the podcast. Before the break, we were hearing from people we've met throughout the series and whether they feel fully resettled in Virginia, and a lot has changed not only in the lives of the folks we've met, but also in the world in the last two and a half years. I called up our executive producer, Angela Messino, to talk about the current state of refugee resettlement. So now, you know, it's 2020. uh, It's the 40th anniversary of the Refugee Act, uh, which really laid down the framework for the resettlement program uh, that we have today. Uh, And so where are we now?
8: I mean, when I first started working on this project, it was really to look into who are the people behind this word that feels so dehumanizing, which is refugee. And what is the process of resettlement that is being so questioned right now and is under attack? And I've learned so much about the policies and the structures that are in place in order to process and intake refugees. But then it's really been these individual stories and hearing uh, people's experiences and how, you know, the plurality of those experiences as well. The fact that you can feel resettled but not feel resettled. The fact that you can feel so, you know, grateful to be here but also miss your home so much that you want to go back And I mean, this podcast is coming out in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of the country trying to grapple with its racial inequities. We're talking about refugees, but it's not necessarily the topic that is on everybody's minds at this moment. And I do wonder, Ahmed, you know, how relevant this is
1: you know, I think it's it's resettlement as a whole and the resettlement process is more relevant than, than ever. And these are you know, these are stories that matter. Just a few weeks ago was World Refugee Day. Um, and every year the UNHCR releases a global report on displacement, which you know outlines how many people have been displaced. And in the last decade the number of displaced individuals has doubled. And so now nearly 80 million people are displaced. 80 million people.
8: And 80 million people is 1% of the world's population. Yes. But only a fraction, like 1% of that 1% will ever actually get to resettle anywhere.
1: Yeah, and so, so many people who have been displaced won't get the chance to resettle And, you know, it was difficult before, and it's, you know, even more difficult now. You know, to date, this fiscal year accounts for the lowest amount of refugees resettled in the U.S. on record. Between October 2019 and June 2020, under 8,000 refugees have been resettled here. And so it's this really, you know, difficult situation where the U.S. now is being, you know, hit really, really hard with the coronavirus but also that shouldn't come at the expense of you know human rights right and so we have to constantly kind of be aware of of those implications we have to understand the context of of what's actually happening and the numbers were already low to start
8: yeah i mean honestly since i've been working on this project there's been such a sharp decline i actually saw one resettlement agency close their doors because So few refugees are being admitted into the country that they weren't provided the reception and placement grant. That's the grant that actually allows agencies to resettle refugees and then also provide some of that funding to resettle
1: refugees. Yeah. When we talk about refugees and and displacement, it's not something that just started 10 or 20 years ago. It's something that's been happening for a very long time. And for a very long time, the US has been the leader in refugee resettlement. So currently, when we are not that leader, we have to really imagine um, and remember, you know, the responsibility and, and really kind of work to further extend that responsibility and, and further create opportunities for people to Hopefully, you know, return you know to their homes when possible, and then if not, be able to build uh, new lives in their new home countries. I think it's it's about recognizing like the historical context of how displacement has been caused over the you know the past few decades, and then recognizing you know the responsibility to provide protections for you know the world's displaced, and and making sure that. You know, folks are given opportunities to rebuild their lives um, you know that have been upended. And the goal is is for the refugee crisis to be irrelevant someday, right? That's the that's the dream. Uh, and the, I think the importance of the work that this podcast is trying to do is to, again, amplify the stories and amplify them and you know hopefully in, in nuanced and, and thoughtful ways. When folks hear that word refugee or immigrant, you're reminded of, of Chef Nuri uh, and his restaurant or Fatima and, and, and her high school play or the La family and then their journey and finding a new home. Uh, or Ahmed al-Syria and his firefighting crew. These are remarkable, remarkable human beings, uh, you know, that, you know, may have been displaced and have had that refugee label, but have, you know, really transcended their displacement in so many different ways. So it's important to remember that that word refugee is three-dimensional and it represents so many different stories and and experiences.
8: Right. And these stories, I mean, through the podcast, were just a small portion of that experience. I don't know, I often think about the power of getting to know people, how this intimacy may change your perception. I think Chef Nori and Fatima, I mean, they really put it best.
7: We as a people, we are not only here to to this world to just enjoy the life and just don't worry about others. We're here to feel others' pain and to find a way out to serve them.
0: Look at the people just the same way that you look at yourself. Try to be like, there are people just the same as me, and they will feel and think just the same as I do.
8: It's these words that still stick with me, and the lessons I've learned from each and every person that I've met through the podcast, you know, and ate dinner with and shared in celebrations and even witnessed some setbacks. There's so much we can learn from each other,
1: Thank you so much for listening to Resettled. This has been the last official episode in our series, but check back next week for a bonus episode from a podcast called Neighbours. Neighbours does a deep dive into the stories of ordinary people that show us our common humanity. Next week, we'll share an episode that covers a vital aspect of the resettlement process, language. Resettled is produced by Jilda DeCarly and edited by Kelly Jones. Music is by Sandhill and Blue Dot Sessions. Jordi Yeager and Nasir Afsali contributed reporting for this episode. Thanks to Zarmina Wahidi for her translation work and for voicing Mrs. Leiluma. Our production manager is Gavin Wright. Steve Humble is VPM's chief content officer. And I'm your host, Ahmed Badr. Thank you so much for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure being on this journey with you.
8: It's been a long road and many, many people helped us get here. Special thanks to Bruce Astor, our mentor at the NPR Story Lab, to our producer, Maria Perazzo-Rose, to my VPM colleague and mentor, Catherine Komp, as well as Yasmin Juma, Leslie Brett, Sefei Ahmed, Helen Zina Dean, for your early research recording and relationship building. To those who helped connect us to people and stories in thoughtful and meaningful ways, thank you, Harriet Kerr, Kate Ayers, John Bowman, Jordy Yeager, Nazir Afzali, Zermina Wahidi, the Charlottesville Festival of Cultures, the Underground Kitchen, Harrisonburg International Festival, and Harrisonburg High School. And to the team that helped bring it all together. <laughs> thank you to Jilda DeCarli, Kelly Jones, and Gavin Wright, for your ability to turn hundreds of hours of tape into six beautiful episodes. And of course, thank you to Ahmed Badr for being game early on to build something new together.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check out vpm.org slash resettled to see more photos and stories from our community. Members are a fundamental part of VPM. Member support is especially vital right now. Through member support, we're able to provide timely and fact-based information, educational resources for our kids, and informative and entertaining content to keep minds active and engaged. Be a part of what makes VPM possible. Visit vpm.org donate to become a member today.